It's Thursday, June 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. New charges in the case of George Floyd. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison increased the murder charge for Derek Chauvin to second-degree murder and also charged the other three officers present at the time with aiding and abetting second-degree murder. Kim Belware, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on these new charges. Next, there are approximately 1,600 active-duty U.S. Army troops waiting for a possible deployment into the streets of Washington, D.C. to restore order if protests get out of hand. President Trump would have to enact the Insurrection Act of 1807 to deploy them. But the plan has been met with opposition by many, including Defense Secretary Mark Esper. Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for the plan to activate the military. Finally, the coronavirus pandemic has reduced public education in the U.S. to a shell of its former self. A Reuters survey of several school districts found that students aren't having enough face time with teachers, some districts don't even take attendance for online classes, and access to classes is also difficult at times. Michael Pell, reporter at Reuters, joins us for how schools have been affected. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. I filed an amended complaint that charges, that charges former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin with murder in the second degree for the death of George Floyd. Joining us now is Kim Belware, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Kim. Thanks for having me. Attorney General Keith Ellison's office on Wednesday upgraded the charges against the former Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, who knelt on George Floyd's neck. And that he also charged the other three officers that were at the scene with aiding and abetting murder. The attorney general said that we strongly believe these developments are in the interest of justice for Mr. Floyd and his family, this community and our state. He said George Floyd mattered. He was loved. His family was important and his life had value. And he also said that we will seek justice for him and for you and we will find it. Kim, tell us more about these new charges. Derek Chauvin, the fired officer who was seen with his knee on George Floyd's neck in that viral video, he already was facing charges of third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter as of Friday, but the remaining three officers had not been charged or been arrested until today. The charges against Chauvin, there was an additional charge of second-degree murder, and the remaining three officers, uh, all they faced the same charge of second-degree aiding and abetting unintentional murder. So in Minnesota law, aiding and abetting um, gets you the same sentence as someone who who actually violated the law. So all four of those former officers are facing the same penalty of a maximum of 40 years if convicted. And that's what we're hearing when we hear unintentional felonies? Yes. And something that's also important to note in when they say unintentional versus, um, you know, intentional and, and those distinctions is it does have an impact on the burden of proof that the prosecutors are going to have to bring. Um, It's notable that the charges against Chauvin in particular, that he's facing, you know, an added charge that's more severe from his initial ones, because if he's convicted, he would be the first white Minnesota officer in the state's history, I believe, to be criminally convicted of killing a black resident. I think even Attorney General Ellison noted this. It's hard. These are very hard cases to try. And the Hennepin County attorney, uh, Mike Freeman, he's one of the few prosecutors in the state who has ever successfully 
prosecuted a police officer. So Ellison was definitely signaling that, uh, you know, this could take time to investigate and that these cases are hard to win. But the fact that they brought the additional second degree charge against Chauvin in particular definitely signals that his office feels like their evidence is strong enough because if they overcharge a case and they can't prove it, those officers uh, are acquitted. Yeah. And that's the difficulty with this. I think that's why the first charge was third degree. They think now that they have more evidence to bump that up to second degree murder. The charges don't appear to require prosecutors to prove that Chauvin intended to kill George Floyd, which is an important distinction. And I know a lot of protesters, a lot of people are calling, you know, saying this should be bumped all the way up to first degree murder. But that's so difficult to prove that he intended to go out there and find him and, you know, kill him and all that. Uh, you know, that that's uh, the burden of proof right there would be so great that, as you mentioned, an acquittal could happen right away or something. So that's why they're being very careful with this, with what these charges are. Derek Chauvin, he's still in custody right now. His bail had previously been set at $500,000. It's now set at $1 million. He's still in custody. Have the other officers been taken into custody yet? As of the announcement, the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension said that the remaining three officers were in the process of being taken in. They already had one in custody, but they didn't specify which one it was. I know that the Attorney General Keith Ellison had taken questions about this case and how difficult it could possibly be to to convict them and all. Uh, what did he say about all that? I think he prepared people for the road ahead, which is that these are tough cases to try. I think that he probably, for many reasons, doesn't want to overpromise. He's he's aware of what the the sentiment is in Minneapolis and in Minnesota and around the country towards these. But you know, he did say that they're also trying to do this case right and they're trying to do this case fairly. So they, you know, he, he's really going to have to balance understanding the anger from the public, but not letting that influence charging decisions because, you know, again, he can only prevail if he can prove what, what they've charged. Tell me a little bit more about the charges for the other cops, aiding and abetting. What kind of time, if they are convicted, what kind of time could they be serving? So I'm not quite clear on the minimums, but the maximum for that is 40 years. So if they uh, if they do face the maximum, it would be that. I'm not a legal analyst, but I think it is fair to say, looking at other similar such cases that, you know, depending on what the arguments, I guess I would say, in, instead of prognosticating, I'll tell you that it would come down to the arguments that their defense makes. Um, you know, if you look through the reconstruction of videos from the scene, there are definitely different touch points that yeah. all of the officers have. So I would venture a guess that, you know, you'll have some different defenses arise. And, you know, there are four different attorneys. Kim Bellware, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks. The option to use active duty forces in a law enforcement role should only be used as a matter of last resort and only in the most urgent and dire of situations. We are not in one of those situations now. I do not support invoking the Insurrection Act. Joining us now is Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent for The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Nancy. My pleasure. As we've been watching these protests go throughout the country in response to the killing of George Floyd, a lot of other things that we've been seeing is that this increased police presence, obviously to control the crowds when they were very dangerous, you know, to catch looters and people with acts of vandalism and violence. 
things got so bad so quickly that the National Guard has been called in. And then came this other plan by the president to possibly call in the military, active duty military forces to help stomp out some of the more violent parts of the protest. Obviously, that got a lot of criticism. The president would have to enact the Insurrection Act of 1807 to get some of this done. The defense secretary, Mark Esper, said at a press briefing that he doesn't currently support invoking this law. There's so much that's been going on with all of this. Nancy, help us wrap our heads around this, please. So the idea of using the Insurrection Act is really extraordinary because it happened so infrequently. It was written in 1807 when there was actual fears of an insurrection, as the name would suggest. And the idea was that if the states had lost so much control over their government that the president could, in consultation with those governors, then talk about bringing in federal troops. We saw this, for example, in 1992, after the acquittal for officers and the beating of Rodney King. We also saw it several times during the civil rights movement. The president can supersede local government if the states have decided to not enact laws. So we saw this most often in civil rights. So, for example, President Eisenhower went against the request and the desires of the governor of Arkansas to federalize National Guard troops and have them ensure that, that black students trying to attend Central Rock High in Little Rock could go to school. And so it's a very exceptional thing. The president was talking about using them in Washington, D.C. because the rules are different because it's not a state and it's the home to monuments that have been vandalized. It is where his house is and a lot of federal properties. And so we have 1,600 active duty troops stationed around the D.C. area waiting for the president to invoke that order. That said, much of the military is against using this. You know, people who join the military will tell you they didn't join with the intent of deploying on American streets and using their skills on American citizens. It just goes against, from their perspective, what they're here to do. They're here to defend against external enemies, not fellow citizens. And so you're hearing real objection and also sort of the precedence that it sets once you have troops in American streets. It just, the image of it, what it invokes, has led to widespread objections, I think, within the military. And so the military has been pretty adamant about keeping any sort of military presence to the National Guard because those guys are governed by the governors, not by the federal government. Yeah, and the president gave a speech the other day and uh, in a call with governors, you know, was calling them weak, saying we really need to show a strong presence to dominate the space. I think Mark Esper had said something similar, but then he walked it back, saying he doesn't support this. And so there's a lot been made by the president wanting to show force, wanting to seem strong in all of this. But in the past few days, and, you know, there's a lot yet to go on with this, but cities enacting curfews and arrests starting to be made by local police of people violating those things have started to kind of calm the situation down a little bit. The protesters, the peaceful protesters have started to get their voices heard a lot more in the past few days. So the president seemed quick to want to have the show of force. But I think from what I've been hearing, he's easing off of this now. Well, I think there's been a lot of discussion internally within the White House. And again, we've heard from our sources that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, raised objections. Other Pentagon leaders raised objections. And so the idea was, let's see what the National Guard does, because it's such a big step from their perspective to invoke the Insurrection Act, to put a federal face, if you will, on the response that the hope was that if you allow the National Guard, who come from these communities, who are trained in law enforcement to do their job, then then that's a better option. So I think you're right. As things have been better over the course of the week, 
legislators are hoping that, that they can start to talk less and less about the Insurrection Act. And we're starting to hear at the Pentagon today talk of sending some of those troops back to Fort Drum, New York, and Fort Bragg, North Carolina, where they deployed from earlier this week. The other thing that we saw happen, too, was when the president... After he gave a speech, he wanted to walk to the church that was right there for a photo op. There were crowds that had to be dispersed with some tear gas, and there was a pretty good show of force behind that one. There was also this medevac helicopter that was hovering low over the protesters. I think there's going to be an investigation into how or why that happened also. But uh, who were those forces that were there dispersing those crowds? Because I saw people on horses and they were using tear gas. Who were those forces that were being used there? So those are other federal forces like Secret Service and other sort of troops along those lines. There were National Guardsmen there. General Langell, who was in charge of National Guards, said those forces did not have tear gas or pepper spray. They are armed, but they didn't have tear gas or pepper spray, suggesting that they were not part of those that dispersed the crowd. And so it's not just about who was there, but what they were equipped with and what their orders were. So for the military, it was upsetting because both the Defense Secretary Mark Esper and General Miller, the chairman, walked out with the president and as you know, the military takes an oath to defend the Constitution, and critics would say that Constitution includes the freedom of assembly. And so for a service member, the top service member in uniform, to walk through an area that had been dispersed while people um, executing the Constitution, I think, was a bit jarring and struck people as a real hypocrisy in terms of a break with that promise to defend the Constitution, including the rights stateside to assemble. Nancy Youssef, National Security Correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Education is really a fraction of its former self under distance learning. And that's not because teachers aren't trying. It's not because school administrators aren't trying. It's not because parents aren't trying. And really often it's not because students aren't trying. It's because For the vast majority of students, distance learning is not effective. Joining us now is Michael Pell, reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Michael. Thanks for having me today. Talking about coronavirus, it's hard to lose track of our children and all of this and the students and how schools have also had to be shut down in addition to all the businesses. The world basically stopped. But we're looking forward now to reopening. A lot of states are already in that process Schools are still trying to figure it out, whether they will continue virtual learning, this distance learning, as they're calling it. But there's some analysis that you guys were doing there at Reuters and found out that a lot of kids in the latter half of this school year just kind of either gave up because they knew some of the grades weren't going to count. Just a lot of problems overall with the schools. Michael, tell us a little bit about what you're learning. I think that what we found by surveying districts across the country is that education is really a fraction of its former self under distance learning. And that's not because teachers aren't trying. It's not because school administrators aren't trying. It's not because parents aren't trying. And really often it's not because students aren't trying. It's because for the vast majority of students, distance learning is not effective. According to what teachers, researchers, and parents told us, we're finding out that school districts aren't taking attendance. Schools are not grading students. Schools are providing a small fraction of the live instruction that they were prior to closing. As a result, parents are having to take on a lot of the load, parents who are already working in most cases, and students, their education development, and sometimes even their health is falling by the wayside. And I say health because we also found that 
schools, as many people know, are critical for providing nutrition to students. And in the districts that we surveyed alone, we found out that districts are serving 4.5 million fewer meals a week. And these are meals that are meant for hungry children, disadvantaged children, and these children are often missing these meals. An interesting thing with all of this is, as we've seen coronavirus kind of spread throughout the country and the world, obviously, we're seeing that children aren't really affected as much as others. They're either not getting it in the same numbers or they're not getting it as severe as other people. So a lot of people were making the call, why don't we reopen the schools since they're not as affected in the same ways? There's been almost no deaths of children with this, but still the plan to reopen still eludes a lot of school districts. They don't know exactly how they're going to do it just yet. That's absolutely right. Very, very small numbers of children have died, and it seems like most of them have had critical health conditions even before that. It's also not clear that closing schools prevents community spread of the disease. The latest research is really starting to call that into question. But districts are not public health officials. A lot of them don't understand the health issues. They're relying on advice from other sources. And right now they're trying to make their plans for September. And what we found is that there are a few options that most districts are looking at. Either a partial reopening, which would mean maybe two days a week or something like that, in order to try to at least pretend like they're following social distancing guidelines. Although a lot of districts that we spoke with said even having two shifts of students going through classes, they really often will not be able to keep students six feet apart. The other option is continuing with distance learning. So as a lot of parents have told us, essentially that means really not having school for another semester. Those are really the two main options that districts are looking at. Another issue with all of this too is access. A lot of kids at home don't have the same access to the resources they have while they're in school. You have a few stories in your article talking about how A family might only have one or two computers and everybody's kind of vying for time on that computer to be able to complete your assignments, do your research, whatever you need to do. And oftentimes it's not just the students, it's the parents that need those computers too. So it's some of these issues of access are also very difficult to navigate. Access to material, access to devices, access to just broadband internet are all unevenly distributed. We spoke with Fort Wayne uh, School District in Indiana And they said that they're having a tremendous problem with students not being able to access resources online. The same is true in Philadelphia. The Philadelphia School District made a supreme effort to get devices to students. And that still didn't always solve the problem. Like you said, you have parents that need devices as well. You have parents that need access to the Internet as well. Not only that, but even when you get devices in the kids' hands, even if you make Wi-Fi available to students, you still have all sorts of other problems that crop up and parents need to be the tech team. Parents need to be able to answer the questions for the students. I got to be honest, I wasn't a great student and I'm not a great teacher. And so I've got my kids at home right now. And when they come to questions frequently, I have to scratch my head and go, man, I don't know. You better go see your mom because I'm not good at answering this kind of question. And I think that there are a lot of parents in that type of situation as well, because they're being relied on to be the teacher for most of the day. Michael Pell, reporter at Reuters, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me today. I really appreciate it. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.